Okay, be turning in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. So throughout the last month or so, we've been seeing exactly what it looks like, at least according to Paul, for Christians to be filled with the Spirit. And he's mentioned things like wives willingly submit to their husbands. Husbands sacrificially love their wives. Kids honor and obey their parents. Masters and servants treat each other as if they're treating that person like the Lord. And so when Paul starts talking about spiritual warfare here in our text that we're going to read in just a moment, it almost seems like it's sort of coming out of left field. Like, where is this coming from, Paul? Well, it's not, and I want to help us understand how it's not in just a moment. But let's read the text And then let's have a word of prayer. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Let's read together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, to me in opening my mouth, boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Lord, over and over. In this passage, you are calling us to put on things. And in reality, Lord, we're already wearing them as your people, as your children. And so, Lord, may this be a reminder this morning. May you teach us today, not only about the armor that's given, Lord, but also of your son who was given. Who makes all of this happen who has gathered us together, who has cleansed us by the blood of the cross. And Lord, we would walk out today filled with joy, not fear, because Christ is in us and because you prevail. We're thankful, Lord, for all of these things. Teach us this morning in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Think back for just a moment to all that we've talked about in the book of Ephesians. 
Think back to chapter 1 where he's talking about being predestined and elect for salvation and how it's all been a process of God. Chapter 2 where he's talking about it's by grace through faith and not of your works. Chapter 3 and 4 get into what it means to really walk in the Spirit. 5 expands on that with husbands and wives. And 6 starts talking about children and employees and bosses. And now all of a sudden Paul transitions to this idea of spiritual warfare. And a, what a battle looks like. But it's not coming out of nowhere. And I want us to notice this together. You'll see these in your notes. And I put them there deliberately for this. I want to review those and look at these things. This isn't the first time that Paul has talked about the belt of truth. Or righteousness. Or peace or faith or salvation or the word of God. Look at chapter 4 verse 25. Therefore having put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. The belt of truth. Chapter 4, verse 24. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The breastplate of righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The gospel of peace. Shoes of peace. In chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The sword of the spirit, the word, which is the word of God. See, these things are not just some random military example that Paul slaps on the end of his book here. There's a purpose in these things. It's a calculated and specific ending to what the Lord wanted him to communicate to the Christians in Ephesus. And I think to us today, Paul's recapping his letter in a way that I think is intended to motivate Christians. Well, how? Does this motivate us? Because Paul starts talking about a battle. How does a, how does preparing for battle motivate us? Battles are hard. Lives are lost in battles. Things are lost in battle. It is hard. Why should this motivate us? Well, I think Paul writes to believers in hope and he writes in expectation and confidence because no matter what happens in this life, in these battles, the war has already been won on the cross and in the empty tomb. The war's already been won. And so Paul's writing this to motivate Christians because God reigns and God wins. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Verse 12 through 16. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Brothers and sisters, you are eternally secure in Christ. And so Paul writes 
to empower and motivate Christians. I hope that we receive this word in the same way. Look forward just a few verses in chapter 2 to verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If you are built on the foundation of Jesus and found in him, then there's no need to shy away from the troubles of this life because none of it affects you eternally. You're secure. You have been raised, we find out in chapter 2. You have been raised with him, raised with Christ, and you no longer live for yourselves, but you live for him now. And so if you are in Christ, we are told in Philippians, you are a new creation, one created hereafter likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Paul says here in Ephesians. So though we still endure these skirmishes, these battles here on this earth, we know the end of the story. God's will prevails. And so it doesn't matter culturally what's happening. I mean, it does, but eternally it doesn't because we know God is still sovereign and God is in control. No matter who sits on the thrones of countries or in the president's seat of our country, God is still in control. We should not despair. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to what? Bow. Every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, that's the God that we serve. The one who every knee is going to bow to. Hebrews 1, 11 and 12. This is talking about the Son of God. It says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. That's the kind of God that we serve. Back to Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. Read that with me. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, if Christ fills all, that certainly includes Christians. This is the kind of God that we have. The same God that raised up the dead also fills us. He fills us not for us to go and to raise people from the dead, but for us to go and by the preaching of the word, by the spread of the gospel, raise people from the dead spiritually. That same God is in you. And there's no need to fear the battle. The one who has everything under his feet fills every believer. Is in you. I, I hope that that brings a smile to your face. Not because of you, but because of God. Because of Christ in you, we have this confidence. So fear is nowhere to be found here. Just think back or flip through what we just read in chapter 6. There's, there's no fear even hinted at with what Paul is writing. Fear is not his expected response to battles. Faith is. 
Not fear, faith, because we already know that God wins. God has won on the cross. So we don't have to live in bondage. You don't have to live in fear if you belong to the Father. Because by His grace, you will endure for the glory of His name, the eternal glory of His name. You will persevere even in the battle that is raging in your life right now. Did you know that God is referred to as a warrior in Scripture? Oftentimes, maybe more particularly in the Old Testament, Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 42, verse 13, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts out loud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. That's the kind of God that we serve. Now, I think it's possible, as Paul was thinking through these pieces of the armor, that he had a Roman soldier in mind. They would have been there. He would have seen them. Uh, he was in prison, and so he would have seen them regularly. It's possible that he that had that in mind. But I think, too, he would certainly have been drawing from his understanding of who God was from the Old Testament when he was writing this. So Paul's basis for the battle and armor imagery is relevant today, even though we don't prepare for battle quite the same way. Just because we don't prepare for the battle the same way doesn't mean we're going to try to change these words. You know, we're not going to talk about Kevlar vests and heat-seeking missiles and bazookas and those sorts of things. We're not going to change it that way simply because that is totally opposite of what his point was. Because his point is talking about spiritual things, not the physical things. So I'd ask that you just kind of get out of your mind these pieces of the armor that you see for just a moment. Because we, we see them on shirts and you go to the Christian bookstores and you can buy mugs and even little statues of these things. Just get that out of your mind for a moment. Because Paul's talking about the spiritual aspect of these things. This is a spiritual battle, not a physical one. So he's been talking about the relational challenge that there is, person to person level. But now he shifts his thinking and, and our thinking to the cosmic battle, to the spiritual battle that exists. This is not the first sermon that you've probably heard on Ephesians 6 and the, and the armor of God. And if I've heard 10 different sermons on this, I've heard 10 different ways to interpret it and apply it in your life. My hope, though, today is not that we would like memorize the pieces of the armor and then I'm not going to encourage you to get up tomorrow morning and pray these pieces of the armor on. I'm not going to do that because I think that is reinforcing, missing the point that these are spiritual things that Paul is referring to. Paul's already given us examples of what Christians should be doing every day. Paul's already told us. Just look in your notes and think back with me. I'm going to go through them quickly. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Christians are going to walk in good works. If you've been saved, God has good works prepared for you beforehand. Walk in them. Chapter 3, verse 19 that you would know the love of Christ more. Something that Christians would do every day, that we would know Christ's love more today than we did yesterday. And we do that by reading his word primarily. Chapter 4, 1 through 3, Paul says to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity with the brothers and sisters in Christ in the body. He's also told us in 4.13 to grow in maturity. 4.15, speak the truth in love. 4, 19 and 22, put off every kind of impurity and deceitful desire. 4, 23 and 24, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then the end of chapter 4, he says, don't sin in your anger. 
He says, don't steal. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Don't remain bitter. He says, instead, forgive. So if you want to be protected against the things that the devil is going to be throwing at you, you can start with that list. And that's not even to, to start talking about what he said to husbands and wives and kids and parents and bosses and employees in chapter six, five, 5 and 6. Those are the things that we should be starting with. So Paul spends very little time on explaining the pieces of the armor in chapter 6. And he can be so short and succinct in chapter 6 because he's already talked about them all throughout Ephesians so far. If we pull away just this little section in chapter 6, if we pull away this little section of the armor of God away from the rest of the book of Ephesians, we're going to have a very surface and shallow understanding of what God is calling us to do as Christians. So keep it together. My goal today, and we're going to kind of finish this section next week, it's not to do a deep dive on all these pieces of the armor like you maybe have heard other people do before. I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I want us to understand is how these things are connected to the rest of the book, as we've just seen, but also how this impacts us moving forward. What does the battle and the armor of God mean for us moving forward in our Christian life? Because Paul has been writing to Christians about the challenges that emerge in our earthly relationships and how the Spirit, by the truth of the gospel, empowers us to respond to these relationships and problems appropriately. So far, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul has been helping us understand how to rightly respond to authority. No matter if you're a husband, if you're a wife, you're an employee, or if you're a child, or you're a boss. How we respond to authority in our lives. And Paul has explained how Christians respond in all these scenarios. And now he tackles one that may be the most relevant, the most applicable to us of all. How do we respond to the problem of evil? How do we respond to the battle that is raging? Paul explains who the real enemy is. Now, he doesn't start there, but he gets there. Where does he start? Look at verse 10. He doesn't start with the enemy. Who does Paul start with in chapter 6, verse 10? In the Lord. He says, be strong in the Lord. Paul begins by in- encouraging and reminding believers Here is where your real strength comes from. Strength doesn't come from military power. It doesn't come from the arms and backs of men. It comes from the Lord. Psalm 24 verse 8 reinforces this idea. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That's the kind of God that we serve. Brothers and sisters, your strength doesn't even come from how long you've been a Christian. Your strength doesn't come from how many Bible verses you have memorized, your attendance at church. Your strength doesn't come from even how frequently you pray. Those are good things. Those are positive fruit of a believer, but that's not where your strength comes from. If anything, those things should be constant reminders of how dependent we are on someone else, on God himself. Why else would we pray? If you could fix the problem yourself, why are you praying? That's an admission of your dependence on God. And that's a good thing. So Paul has used this analogy before, and we've talked about it before, but think about a house for a moment. You can have level and plumb walls. You can have a brand new roof that can withstand hurricane force winds. But if your foundation is crumbling, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. 
is going to come crashing down. Brothers and sisters, that is what it's like to trust in your own strength in the battle. You might have some kind of success resisting evil for a moment, but eventually your strength will fail and everything just comes crashing down. Too often, I think people then at that point in the process, they start pointing their fingers back to God and blaming him. When in reality, their hope was always set on their own ability and their own strength, not on his. So I want us to see and understand clearly today, just like we sang this song at the end of the service last week, we sang, all I have is Christ. And there's a line in that song that I love. It's so appropriate for this. And it says, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. It's true. God gives us commands to follow. And then he gives us his spirit to empower us to follow those commands. It's all a work of God. A friend of mine and I were talking this week about this sort of thing. And and he very insightfully said, well, if you're trusting in your own strength in the battle, then you've already lost. What strength are we supposed to go into battle with then? If it's not our own right there, verse 10, the strength of his might, the strength of his might This is why Paul also says in other places that he boasts in his weakness, not in his strengths. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How many of you have ever felt weak? You don't have to raise your hand. Every one of you has. In that moment, is it hard to imagine that God is powerful? Sometimes it is. Because too often we equate our own abilities with God's. And we kind of project our own failings and strengths onto God. God's nothing like us in that way. There's not places in in God's life where he's struggling like we are. He's not like us in that way. He uses our weakness to glorify himself. Think about it. Why on earth would God tell the Israelites to march around Jericho with nothing but trumpets? Why would God tell Gideon to pare down his army to 300 men and then when he gets finally gets to that amount to not even take a sword into battle? Go to the enemy with trumpets and clay pots with torches in them. Why would God ask his people to do ridiculous sounding things like that? For his name's sake. Because when Jericho fell... No one was saying, man, those Israelites, they got really strong legs for walking all that time around the city. They're really awesome people. I cannot believe that that happened. And when Gideon and his 300-person army beat the Midianites, they're saying, the God of the Israelites is one that's worthy to be feared. So the attention was put on God, not on his people. And so Paul can say, I boast in my weakness because that makes God seem strong. When the battle is won, everybody knows it's not me, it's God. Paul reminds us that we are not the ones who need to be strong in the battle. We are to be the ones who exercise faith in the battle. Don't go into it thinking you're going to resist temptation by your own will and fortitude. Go into it trusting the promises of God and His strength. Maybe before anything else, we just need to simply be aware that there is actually a battle happening. And we may be a little bit shielded from this idea in our culture, but I've heard from many that go overseas or to other people groups that spiritual warfare is much more on the on the surface there. 
We may be a little shielded, but we need to understand that there is a battle happening. Now, I'm not suggesting that we make every problem out to be this this full-blown attack of the enemy. We need to just be aware that there's more to the problem of evil in the world than what meets the eye. And Paul says this very thing. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of nature in the heavenly places. There's there's no doubt what Paul is saying here. There is a battle happening. And we use the tools God gives us in order to stand and resist the devil. There's an interesting thing happening in our culture. It's much more socially acceptable in 2020 to go talk to a counselor or to go see a therapist. Some of you, some of you can remember 20, 30 years ago, much less common. So our culture is, is moved towards this of, you know, f- being more free with our feelings. But when we talk about these things with people like that, most of the time, we don't want to talk about evil. We don't want to talk about the devil. We don't want to talk about faith. And we certainly, maybe not certainly, but a lot of times we don't really want to talk about what the spirit of God in Christians empowers us to do, but it's all connected. But if you start suggesting that someone's physical or psychological problem could be the result of spiritual problems under the surface, a lot of people just write you off as kind of a lunatic, some fanatic, or maybe just the other way that you're really naive. And that stuff just really isn't a problem. But Paul says in verses 11 and 12 that there is a problem. That the devil is real. And that he uses schemes to turn us away from God and against each other. And we're not going to talk a lot about the kinds of schemes that the devil uses because you all know them really well. Because he uses them on you just like he uses them on me. And you fall for them just like I fall for them. But we need to remember that the enemy is a liar and a, and he's the father of lies and he rarely displays a scheme as just flat out wrong because then only a few people would fall for them. So what does he do? You know this. He blankets the lie with a little bit of truth, just, just a little bit, a little bit, just enough to make us want to believe it. Let's, I think that kind of is true. Just enough that the pleasure of the temptation outweighs the consequences of the sin at least in the moment. We had the time change this morning. And I don't know about you guys, but it was awfully hard to get up out of bed today. And if you've got little kids, you know that even more so. It seemed, and even not on a time change Sunday, you're, it's, it's like the devil makes your bed feel the best on Sunday mornings. You're just all cozy in there. The temperature's perfect. The kids are sleeping in. The setting is right to just hang out in bed and say, I'll go to church next week. I'm so tired. Everyone will understand. You see how this works? You don't have to be a Christian for very long to understand and know the struggle that it is to obey God and his word. But Paul has already made it clear that the enemy is real. And we find out in the beginning of chapter 2 that the enemy is not only real, but that he's captured the hearts of men. He has us, hook, line, and sinker. But then also in chapter 2, we find out how Paul says through the Spirit, God in his mercy 
And the greatness of His love rescues us from that, from the clutches of the enemy. We are rescued. And He does that for sinners according to His good purpose and His good pleasure, not anything that He sees in them. Some people want to believe that things aren't that bad and that there's no need to think about the enemy and his schemes at all. And some people treat every negative situation like the devil is right there personally attacking them. I would ask that we kind of live in the space in between a little bit and not be so extreme in this. We need to, we need to, somewhere between burying our head in the sand and not believing he exists and also ramping everything up to be this full-blown attack of spiritual warfare. Some of those things happen at times. But I think we need to live right in the middle somewhere. And so what I'm asking this morning is that we're just aware of the battle. We need to be aware of the battle. It's, it's happening around us. Look at verse 12 with me. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Flesh and blood here is just what you think it is. People. People made of flesh and blood. Human beings. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. These are, I don't think, referring to systems of government or um, just ideological things. Remember, Paul is emphasizing the spiritual nature of all of this stuff that he's listing. And so he just said, what do we not wrestle against? Flesh and blood. Paul, I would think, seems to be speaking of the powers that work with the evil one in general here. And this makes complete sense based on what Paul has just finished talking about. Earthly relationships with people who are flesh and blood. So let's keep this in its context. He starts talking about how to not wrestle against flesh and blood because he's just talked about who those flesh and blood people are. They're your wife. And they're your husband. And they're your children. And they're your co-workers. And they're your bosses. Those are the flesh and blood that he's talking about, that he has just finished discussing. But you know what? Sometimes our homes feel like a battlefield, don't they? Tensions run high between husband and wife, between kids and parents, between kids themselves. Kids don't want to honor their parents. Parents can easily provoke their children. But guess what? The battle's not against them. The battle isn't even, I'll just side note, the battle isn't even against the family member who's always messing things up. The one who's always a problem. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So if you've made it your mission to oppose that family member, you're not only wasting your time, you're disobeying God. You don't wrestle against them. Sometimes the workplace feels like a battlefield too, doesn't it? Some of you work in some pretty rough locations. It feels like a battlefield. You've got a crummy boss on a power trip or you've got lazy and, you know, coworkers and you're having to pick up the slack and it is frustrating and it is a battlefield. It's easy to treat each other with disrespect because you know that they're not doing the right thing. But guess what? The battle is not against them. The battle is not against them. When our attention is diverted from the real enemy to people, guess what's happening? You're falling for the oldest trick in the book. When you start thinking that they are your enemy, that that person sitting over there is your enemy, you're falling for the oldest trick in the book. Think back to the garden with Adam and Eve. He did the same thing. He blanketed his lie with a little bit of truth, and Eve fell for it. And Adam fell for it. And when God called out to Adam, what did Adam do? He blamed Eve. 
And when Eve was called on the carpet, who did she blame? The serpent. Getting us to fight with one another is the oldest trick in Satan's playbook. Right there, from the beginning. And guys, we fall for it all the time. In the church, in our homes, in the workplace, we fall for it. And we think that that person that we're talking to, made of flesh and blood, flesh and bones, is the enemy, and they're not. This is why I think Paul stressed the unity of believers so often in his letters, is because this is a danger in church. That we start to look across the aisle and see people as our enemies, and they're not our enemies. They're our brothers and sisters. Notice something, though, in this. We do wrestle with something, don't we? He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil. And since the devil is strategic, he uses schemes. Since he's strategic, and because we are in a real battle, Paul gives three commands that we'll discuss more on next week. But look at them with me. Verse 10, 11, and 13. The first command is this, be strong in the Lord. In verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, stand firm. Be strong, put on, stand firm. This is the only way that we can stand against the devil's schemes. The only way that we can do spiritual battle with the forces of evil is to make a stand in God's armor with God's strength. In his armor with his strength. This is Paul's point here. Be strong in the Lord. How? Well, by putting on the armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the tactics of Satan. You see the progression that Paul uses here? This line of thinking. But I also want to point out that there is both a defensive element and an offensive element that we'll also talk about more next week. In verse 13, where it's called to stand against the devil's schemes. This reminds us maybe of James chapter 4 verse 7. Resist the devil and then the promise is he will flee from you. This is the defensive element here. Resist, stand against. And the offensive is listed earlier in verse 11. Put on or take up the full armor of God. How many of you guys have ever walked through a freshly plowed field right after a rain? You ever done that before? I know that we got a lot of farmers here. Kurt's got his hand up high. So when you, let's just pretend that you're in a field and you've walked the length of this room. By the time you get to the other side, what's the status of your feet? Just caked with mud and heavy. Sometimes you get in so deep, you gotta leave the boot behind. But you just, you, you walk through this field and your feet just get so heavy. How is it walking? Once you get to the other side, it's hard work, isn't it? It's a strain on your muscles. You're working things that you didn't work before because there's so much effort being needed here. In chapter 4, Paul gives us examples of what the old self looks like and what the new self looks like. And they couldn't be more different. And here's my point. When you participate in the things of the old self, the flesh, It's like walking through life with 10-pound boots. You've got to be able to move swiftly in a battle. You've got to be nimble and quick on your feet. But how can you do that with all that baggage weighing you down? Instead, we should be putting those things off and actively putting on the things that clothe us in righteousness and holiness. These are the things that make our feet free to go and do God's will in this world. These are things that make us ready for spiritual battle. 
pursuing holiness and righteousness. I think that we should read this text too. A friend pointed this out to me. We should read this text with a collective word to the church as well. There's a corporate element to this. Together, we're told to stand. Together, we're told to put on the armor of God. So I think that should lead us to be there for one another. Speak the truth to one another. Do not remain angry with one another. Be ready to forgive and do what God has called you to do as a husband or as a wife or as a child or as a boss or employee. We should be quick to follow the Lord in those things. We have to do this in God's strength. We have to rely on the strength of the Lord, not our own might, not our own abilities, our own understanding. And the only way to stand in the strength of the Lord is if you are his child. If you are a part of his family, has God called you and have you responded? The only way to be called his child is to put your faith, put your trust, put your belief completely on him. Not in your own strength. If you are, if you are thinking that you're going to be okay when your time is up because your good thing, your good deeds have outweighed your bad deeds, you are sorely mistaken. Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches instead, cast all of your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Scripture teaches that it's the blood of Christ that brings us near and washes us clean. It's not your own effort. It's not your own ability. We have to completely believe that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture, and raised us up to new life. We don't live in fear. Fear is not the response in the battle, brothers and sisters. Faith is. So, I would ask, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, that we would respond by linking arms together in our battle against the evil one. Because this is a corporate word to the church. It, it's like, have you ever seen the movie Gladiator? Every guy in the room surely has seen the movie Gladiator. And they've got those big Roman shields. I think it's in this movie. And when they, when they go to a formation, they lock them close together and even over the top. And they're completely protected. Usually it's around someone really important. Nothing can get through. No arrow, no sword, nothing can penetrate that circle or that square. That's a great picture of what we're called to do and to use the armor of God for as in a church. To come alongside one another and lock arms, lock shields, so to speak, and do this together. I hope that that, that thought, that imagery affects us as we take the Lord's Supper this morning.